Fraud detection is still evolving in many organizations. In fact, for many banking institutions, it remains an afterthought, especially where detection of multi-channel fraud is concerned. But as results from information security media groups knew the faces of fraud survey prove, financial institutions across the board are expected to invest in better fraud prevention and security in 2011. But are they investing in and focusing on the best solutions? Some of the survey's findings may surprise you. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Matt Spear, who oversees security for Buffalo, New York-based M&T Bank, the nation's 17th largest bank holding company. Hi, Matt. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Hi, Tracy, and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Matt, ISMG shared some results from its 2010-2011 The Faces of Fraud survey, which we conducted this fall. A handful of the survey's findings stood out to you, as we've discussed previously, including results related to a cross-channel integration or the lack thereof. According to our survey, 39% of respondents believe cross-channel fraud accounts for less than 10% of overall fraud incidents that they suffered at their respective institutions over the course of the year. Another 22% say cross-channel fraud accounts for between 10% and 25% of overall fraud incidents. Are these percentages low in your opinion? And if so, why are financial institutions in the dark when it comes to cross-channel fraud management and detection? Well, you know, Tracy, I, I certainly, I believe that they're low overall. And the, the number one issue is that we can't positively identify as a, uh, a fraud or identity theft in one channel, uh, then in turn manifests itself as an actual loss or loss avoidance in a, a separate channel altogether. And so in, in some ways it's the case where since we can't prove it to be true, we have to kind of guess as to what is the true impact. Um, I, I actually believe that, you know, that number is probably closer to 50% overall. Unfortunately, I, like uh, you know others in this industry, really can't prove it out. Uh, and so we're stuck making an educated guess. And those that we can detect, you know, are such a small percentage of the uh, overall fraud, since we don't know that we tend to put that number lower. And that makes sense. I think, you know, financial institutions would probably rather assume that it's lower than higher. Would you agree with that? I, I would absolutely agree. And uh, especially in light of not having data to truly point out that it's higher. Now, you've noted from a, a bank's perspective that the use of real-time analytics and a 360-degree view of customers and their transactions would be a nice-to-have, and it would also help with the cross-channel fraud view. Um, but it's probably not that realistic for most institutions. Can you explain? Well, what you have the, the dynamic is that you know any given customer can have multiple relationships with their financial institution, um, and the way that they're identified in process are via systems which are relatively siloed. So, you know, as an, an individual, uh, I may you know work for uh, uh, a company and help, you know, be part of managing their books. And so in that role, uh, I have a business relationship with the financial institution. I can also have my, you know, personal checking savings, money market savings account as part of that relationship. But that's only seen through another set of systems. And let's say I have, um, you know, a uh, an insurance relationship with it, well, that's through a whole other set of systems. And so 
the, the problem of being able to pull all of that data together and then uh, be able to do analytics around the transactions that are occurring for a customer in their entire relationship is very different than being able to see what is their retail um, uh, relationship with the bank. And, you know, that's manageable, but it's all those other ancillary pieces that are very, very difficult to pull together, especially as institutions get larger, uh, because the scale um, and the complexity of the problem uh, is exponential. And so instead of being able to make small incremental investments, it's very large investments and very, you know, large, cumbersome, long-term projects to be able to make that a reality. And so it's very difficult to do. And as you've noted, financial institutions, as they grow, as M&T has through mergers and acquisitions, they often find themselves in more siloed situations. You've touched on this a little bit, but could you highlight for us when we talk about the challenges siloed channels pose, where does that place fraud detection and how does that pose challenges that are perhaps unique from a fraud detection perspective? Well, certainly in the case of, uh, you know, let's take something relatively simple in that um, that I have, you know, a retail relationship with a financial institution and I've got a checking in the savings account. Well, generally those are going to be on a kind of core deposit system that is going to manage the transactions that they go in and out. On the other side, I happen to have um, a home equity line of credit with the financial institution, which is processed on an entirely different system. The data fields themselves are going to have different formats and uh, they, they're going to process in their own manner and they don't go to a central repository. Um, they are, you know, systems that are designed specifically for a HELOC or a deposit system. And so the sharing of information between those two is difficult and um, the differences in the formatting, um, and, you know, make it where you somehow have to do translations along the way to have any hopes of being able to put it into a format where real-time or even batch type of fraud analytics can occur against there. And, you know, again, every time that uh, uh, an organization does a merger or an acquisition, they're compounding that problem by putting more and more accounts or, in some cases, there's institutions that when they do that, um, you know, merger or acquisition, that they actually retain the systems of the acquired institution. And so they've multiplied the problem by having multiple siloed channels. Now, for smaller to mid-sized institutions, siloed channels remain a problem as well. But what unique roadblocks stand in the way where cross-channel fraud detection is concerned for smaller entities? Well, you know, the smaller entities are generally not running the the, the systems themselves are using some kind of application service provider uh, and you know the, the big ones uh, in the banking space are Fiserv and uh, Fidelity Information Services and so they're subscribing to a core deposit system uh, or they're now potentially with a, a Bank of America for their credit card and so not only are they having the silo channels, but now they're introducing that the data doesn't even reside within their organization. It's out at these third-party service providers, and there are multiple 
third-party service providers that any given small institution is using. And so to get those competing vendors to provide a holistic solution uh, is probably not something that's going to happen in my lifetime. Okay. Now, going back to some of the survey results, 51% of respondents also said the biggest challenge facing their organizations, where fraud prevention, of course, is concerned, relates to inadequate fraud detection tools and technologies. 56% said insufficient resources pose the greatest challenge. Are the two responses related, with organizations simply not having the resources to invest in adequate fraud prevention tools, or are other challenges getting in the way here? Well, certainly I, I do believe that they're related, uh, especially, you know, given the current economic environment for uh, banking institutions that there's, uh, because of government mandates uh, and regulatory costs, that there is just less to be able to invest, both in people being the resources as well as in technologies. And uh, so it, it comes down to, being able to cost justify um, the expense of um, you know what can be long expensive projects um, and if you are a bank that is not suffering or having your customers su suffer uh, you know uh, any significance of losses around fraud uh, you're probably not going to invest heavily in that and you know, it, it, what, what happens is that most organizations come to the realization that they need to invest uh, when they have an incident or a series of incidents happen to them. And it tends to be that wake-up call that makes them, um, you know, look more seriously at what do we do to prevent this from ever occurring in the future. Now, you've noted that, if nothing else, every banking institution should enlist a task force or some kind of controlled committee that is charged with reviewing fraud and looking at fraud statistics on a regular basis. But is this a common practice among banks and credit unions today? And if it is, why? If it's not, why not? Uh, what, what I think that you see is that uh, the larger institutions, so let's say the top 100 uh, asset-sized banks in the country, um, you know, generally follow this practice. or you know, at least have processes in place where there's a single authoritative source, whether it's an individual or a committee that's charged with, um, you know, examining the trends, making recommendations about policy changes, as well as protective measures for their, their customer information and their accounts. You know, it's, it's the smaller institutions that definitely have a challenge because, um, you know, when you, when you look at the top 101, there's only a hundred top hundred banks and uh, then you get below that and there are 8,000 uh, other banks and credit unions within the US and in the vast majority of those the CEO is the also the IT person uh, is also the lending officer uh, and so they have very limited resources to be able to dedicate to fraud and it's often a very part-time view of the world uh, and uh, so because of resource constraints it's it's very difficult for them to do. Now when we look at fraud losses most institutions measure losses by the dollar losses they suffer when a breach occurs but what about the so-called soft losses such as the loss of customer and member trust and loyalty? 
and how are those losses impacting institutions from your perspective? And are institutions doing enough to adequately monitor and track customer and member retention? There is a direct effect when there is an incident at an institution. So uh, it was in 2008 that uh, we did a survey and uh, across the industry, and, and what you found is that customers who you know, were notified that the financial institution lost control of their non-public personal information, that 20% of those would walk away from that relationship for good. And, you know, the cost of onboarding or getting a new customer is approximately 10 times more than keeping a customer. And because banking is around a trust relationship, uh, when you have fraud that's involved, that yeah, you have to directly look at not not only the dollars lost, but what was the impact to the customer, and then how can you be very aggressive in your communications with that customer to attempt to retain them. Uh, additionally, with that, you know, the institution has to think about what is going to be their um, restitution policy. Um, you know, as an example, we've we've seen a few lawsuits because of uh, the Zeus malware virus that uh, happened last year where corporate customers lost hundreds of thousands and in some cases millions of dollars. And um, while most of the agreements with those commercial customers are uh, that, you know, if, if it is something that originates from their, their environment through no fault of the bank, that the loss is charged to the customer themselves. Many institutions have been relooking that over time uh, to say, you know, what's the value of losing a long-term customer um, at some dollar threshold of loss versus just making them whole? And uh, so, you know, an institution has to be very aggressive in being able to quickly make the determination on whether they're going to make that customer whole or not, as well as kind of the you know, the private marketing campaign on how to reassure the customer that the relationship with the financial institution is still solid and secure. Now, I'd like to go back to some of the survey results again, and of course, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about check fraud, online banking fraud, and ACH fraud, which relates to some of the customer and member retention issues that we've just discussed. According to our survey, 63% of respondents said they suffered losses from check fraud in 2010, losses that trail only credit and debit fraud, which came in at 82% of respondents who said they suffered from that type of fraud in 2010. Phishing and vishing attacks, which relate to online banking fraud, were noted by 37%, and ACH wire fraud, or account takeover, was ranked by 32% of the respondents. Do you think those percentages seem accurate, or are certain types of fraud more prevalent than most institutions realize? Um, you know, it, it's my opinion that we're probably a little underreported for the larger institutions on ACH and wire fraud, but in general, the, these are relatively accurate numbers. And, you know, part of it is because, uh, you know, only certain types of institutions, and they tend to be the larger ones, offer ACH and wire uh, transaction capabilities, especially in the e-commerce space, versus you know, checks continue to be easy uh, to be able to manipulate and uh, conduct fraud against. And I, I know that, 
the consortium of banks that you know we often discuss these with, it remains still the number one, uh, the number one item. And then while there's a you know especially from a dollar standpoint, it just tends to be bigger in terms of dollars of losses versus the frequency uh, of occurrences more. Uh, more often in debit card, it's just the dollar thresholds are smaller. So, you know, in general, um, I, I think that they're accurate. And I think, though, as, as you become larger institution and have um, more offerings out to customers, that you have to think through what are the potential fraud scenarios around this and how should I be prepared to react to them. Now, talking about the reaction piece, when we asked how prepared most of these institutions felt to prevent those types of fraud, only 34% of the surveyed institutions said they felt prepared to fight check fraud. Why is the percentage so low? Um, part of it is because of technology itself. Uh, so with the, you know, the Check 21 initiatives um, that you know, we saw five years ago, that there certainly is, are more checks uh, are not being processed in paper format, they're being imaged and then shared uh, between institutions through clearinghouses. Um, and so the ability to detect a fraudulent check that you can't touch, you can't truly see, you're really just seeing an image of that, um, makes it more difficult to be able to have that front line, the teller when they receive a check-in, that they can actually, um, you know, make that first judgment call. That has now been pulled out of the equation, and so you're you're forcing um, technologies to mature on the back end to be able to detect that within an image. And um, it is um, it is incredibly difficult to do. Online banking breach prevention and ACH fraud prevention also ranked relatively low, with only 34% of respondents saying they felt prepared to prevent ACH fraud, and only 32% saying they felt prepared to fight online banking fraud, which would be phishing attacks for the most part. What do those percentages tell you? Well, uh, certainly in the on the online banking fraud, that uh, you know we are dependent upon our customers being able to recognize that the email that they received or the site that they're directed to is not truly the institution they meant to go to. And, you know, despite, uh, um, you know, massive customer awareness campaigns, the, the fraudsters have gotten better over time. Instead of being misspelled emails that, uh, and sites that, you know, boy, don't even look anything like uh, the, uh, the institution's web banking site that um, they have become more mature over time and so the emails look like perfectly valid emails uh, and reasonable and uh, in most cases uh, the phishing sites that they're being directed to are nearly duplicates of uh, the web banking the web banking sites that the institution offers so from a customer perspective it is harder to detect and so um, unfortunately, you can't stop phishing. That's totally outside of the institution's control. They can only um, monitor for it and then attempt to get the third-party fraudulent site shut down. When it exists within the U.S., you know, it's physically hosted somewhere in the U.S., it's easy to do. Um, but when it exists outside the U.S. borders, it is very 
difficult to be able to achieve that, and you're dependent upon uh, some kind of third-party service that uh, allows the top domain registers to be able to black hole, uh, or basically when a user clicks on that fraudulent link, that the the Internet can no longer resolve to the fraudulent server that's out there. And then on the ACH side, um, because we have, you know, ACH is really just transactions that, you know, are uh, ABA routing codes and then check numbers, uh, and those are very easy to be able to create fraudulent transactions that the institution has no visibility on until it comes to them for the debiting of an account. And so, you know, this have, could have gone through multiple other banks before it ever comes to the supposed originating uh, institution for, you know, fulfillment of the funds. Uh, and so it, it could have been underway for several days, and then at the last second it's picked up by the the um, supposed originating institution. Unfortunately, what happens is both the origin while the originating institution w might be able to catch it there, it may have already undergone funding processes at two or three other banks, and so unraveling that spaghetti is challenging at best. And I'm going to ask you to, to reiterate some points that you've made earlier in the call today, Matt. And when we talk about some of these types of fraud specifically, especially ACH fraud, because as we move into 2011, most analysts and industry experts expect more channels uh, to rely on ACH, to, to use the ACH. And I'm wondering, when it comes to fraud detection and technology, where are institutions missing the mark? Well, you know, some of it, I'm not sure that the institution themselves are missing the mark. I think what we as institutions should be doing is demanding from our clearinghouses, uh, because none of us process uh, an ACH transaction entirely on our own. You know, those are put out to uh, processing houses that are providing the service and kind of the interchange in between banks. Um, and so demanding from them more robust, fraud detection technology and processes so that they can stop it midstream versus waiting for it to show up at, um, uh, at one of the banks and be detected there as being fraudulent. And so I think that that's where we need to push most as an industry to have them help us. And in closing, Matt, can you tell our audience which fraud trends you think banks and credit unions should be most concerned about in 2011? Well, certainly I think that we will continue to see uh, more robust malware that's being developed by, um, you know, organized crime that resides out of our border, outside of our borders. And, you know, they're, they are very sophisticated. They are always looking for the next opportunity. And uh, so I, I think we will continue to see the rise of malware that's specifically going after our customers' PCs and not bank systems uh, so that they can garner credentials and um, the information that they need to create fraudulent transactions outside of the banks. And so uh, I think that all of us need to think about um, how we can help our customers. And I think 
you can only go so far in education and awareness, but what kind of technical uh, solutions can we put in the hands of our customers to provide them a you know virtual, secure environment for them to conduct their business with us so that there is a higher level of assurance that the customer that's coming into you know web banking or uh, who is attempting to do a mobile check deposit is truly who they say they are and no remnants of that information ever gets left on their PC that could be used fraudulently by someone in the future. And I think that's probably going to be our, our greatest challenges and areas of focus for 2011. Matt, I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from Matt Spear, who oversees security for M&T Bank. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.